here we are in Matthew 11, uh, verse 20, and we're going to read 20 through 30. So I really like that we all read, um, we all take turns to read a verse because I think there is something incredibly beautiful about God's people reading the Word of God, and um, and I just like hearing different people's voices. And I want to say that in the non-previous way possible, but I want to hear your voice. So. Uh, Tristan, do you want to start, and we'll go clockwise, and just read one verse and go. Eleven twenty. Yes. Okay. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you have been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment <coughs> than for you. And you, Capernaum? Capernaum? Capernaum. What's that? Capernaum? Yeah. Oh man, so many letters. Uh, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles you were or if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom. It would have remained to this day. I tell you, even if so even Sodom will be better off on Judgment Day than you. At that time, Jesus prayed this prayer. O oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, thank you for hiding these things from those who think themselves wise and clever, and for revealing them to the childlike. Hmm. <clears throat> Are we at yes, Father? Yeah. Yes, Father. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. My Father has entrusted me with everything. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal himself to. Come tell me all you who are worthy and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right. So, um, continuing this, Jesus, the con, like Jesus is traveling around the Sea of Galilee, and he's doing all these incredible things. He's healing people. He's setting people free. And so, when he is t talking, he's now talking to the religious people. And it goes through in verses 20 through 25. He's like, so heads up. All of you who have seen all these things, <coughs> you will be worse off than the most sinful people. That my reign of judgment will fall heavy on you more so than them. Because you have seen these things and you still didn't repent. You have seen me act and move and make miracles happen. You have seen me resurrect. You have seen me in this entire region, this entire time, doing the work of God. And you still don't get it. And the scripture where he goes um, in 21, and he goes, Chorazin and Bethsaida, you are worse off than Tyre and Sidon. And Capernaum, you are worse off than Sodom. So... Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum were three cities primarily filled with Jews who were seeing all these things and they still did not get it. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom 
were known as non-religious Gentile cities who did not see Jesus do these things. And in Sodom, which in the Old Testament, a uh, little throwback to the OT, Sodom and Gomorrah, essentially God rained down fire on them because of their wickedness and their sin. And Jesus is saying, you are worse off, worse off than Sodom because they saw it and they chose not to believe it. And what stuck out to me in this verse is that the longer I've been a Christian, the more fearful I am that I will become religious. And I followed, I have been a Christian for almost 11 years. And every year that I, um, like another year that I, that I am loving Jesus, the more aware that I am becoming, I could easily become religious and judgmental and act like I have my crap figured out and act like I have everything, all my, like what we say here, our poop in a group. And I can act and pretend like I do the longer I've been with Jesus. Because when you've been in church for a while, you start picking up the lingo, you start picking up cultural things. Uh, surprisingly, I, I had this really shame, like, so we'll share it. I had this really shameful experience that I saw in myself where we were going to a wedding of two people and, oh man, I'm gonna feel like a real jerk saying this out loud. We were going to a wedding of two people. They already had kids together and I wasn't sure why they were getting married, but they were getting married and I had such a bad attitude because I was like, ugh, we have to buy them a wedding gift. <laughs> I can't even buy you cooking sheets because you already have them because you live together. If I buy you spatulas, you already have those too. What am I gonna buy you? I'll get you a gift card. And I was, I was so full of sin. I can look back and laugh now because I recognize, oh gosh, please forgive me. Because this is, that is not the heart of Jesus. That is not the heart of Jesus. But I found myself being incredibly judgmental because I found myself immersed in a culture and in a mindset where it is so easy to look down on other people because they're not acting right, as if they have to act right before they belong into our community. And so I started to think Jesus is talking to these people and he's like, you are missing the point. You who I came for and I'm doing all these things for, you still don't get it. And then I realized that being religious for the sake of religion or tradition will blind us from the very presence and experience that God wants to give us. When we pretend like we have everything figured out, that we have this prayer thing figured out, we have this church thing figured out, we have this Jesus and this Bible thing figured out, and if I just act right in public and my inside life is a hot mess, we call that Lyndon Lawn Syndrome. If everything looks good on the outside, no one's gonna ask about the inside. But if we keep all the people in the like, oh my gosh, yes. And surprisingly, I have a very nice yard. People never want to come inside my house. I'm like, your yard is so nice. I'm like, you want to see the trash inside? I'm just kidding. My house is not nice. Home. But that's the number one compliment we get when people walk by the, wow, your yard is so nice. I'm like, give it six months because it's going to die. But the idea is like being religious and having this exterior of religion and tradition, we can easily miss what God is doing because we already think we can predict what he's going to do. And that is what happened in those cities is that they saw God move in incredible ways and they're like, hmm, 
not gonna believe that can't be it because I expect you to I expected you to be one way and you are this other way and because you don't fit into this idea of what I believe you are to be you don't qualify as God even though you are literally restoring people's bodies restoring people's lives raising people from the dead you still do not fit in what I want you to be so that you this doesn't count and then in their experience of seeing Jesus do all these things and this is why his righteous judgment in this scenario is so intense it's because he's like you just don't get it I keep showing up I keep telling you how much I love you and you still are not choosing to believe this I am showing you truth and restoration and you're still saying nah you're this isn't it you're choosing not to believe and so I just started thinking like you know because a lot of us around this circle are parents you know when our kids just don't get it it could be whatever like it could be like just put on your shoes and then it's like the meltdown of 2019 it could be i don't want you to get scurvy so just eat your vegetables um and they're like no this is the worst baby but it could be easy as like um a couple for, uh, several times over this last year man uh Kyrie has had several experiences where kids were calling her fat and I can tell you, I went zero to ghetto so fast. And I'm like, what are their names? <laughs> and I was like, let's do this. Yes. And my heart was aching because I was, as I was talking to her, I was like, please get it. Please get that whatever these kids are saying to you is not truth. That what I am saying to you is truth. Please get it. Because I remember all the other times with her, I'm like, you're not. I'm like, I asked you just to put the cup on the table. But here it is in the bathroom. And just put it on the table. And I'm like, why aren't you getting what I'm saying to you? We are speaking the same language. And the frustration you feel when you're like, why are you? Why is this so hard? Jesus is having this experience with the religious people. He's like, why is this so hard? You want miracles? Dead girl, alive. You want me to restore people? Bleeding woman, here. You want me to do these crazy things? Here. But you still don't get it. And I began to get so convicted because I realized that it is so easy to miss all the ways that God is showing up because he's not showing up the way that I want him to show up. And right now in this season, like as a lot of you know, like we have walked, Riley and I have walked through a journey where I am still figuring out what is what is what is going on in my body where I have lived in just just not I just haven't been healthy for nine years and we can't figure it out we've done a ton of tests like literally lit a bunch of money on fire and that's called insurance and Riley had surgery on his foot and we prayed and like I don't want to toot my horn but I would say like we're good people like we're gonna be when we pray. We love you, Lord. We're building your kingdom. We opened up our home. Like, just heal my husband. And God has not shown up in that way. God has not miraculously restored my husband's foot. So he lives in pain. And we're seeing God do crazy awesome things in the lives of other people. And we're just wondering, anytime now, Lord, why aren't you showing up? And it was until recently that I realized that maybe the miracle that we are waiting for 
is not what we anticipated, but it doesn't mean that God isn't doing a miracle. It doesn't mean he's not moving and he's not showing up because there are certain things Riley and I have learned in this season that we have not, we would not have learned if God showed up with a miracle. We would have not learned how to abide and align and to worship him when things really suck. We would not have learned to have the grit to continue to press in and lead this church when God doesn't show up for us, but he's showing up for everyone else. We have not, we are learning things about each other and about the Lord and about our faith that if God showed up and did that miracle, it would have been too easy that we would have been on another mountaintop and we needed to learn some things in the valley. And so when we think that God isn't showing up because he's not showing up the way we want to. We are having very narrow perspective. And years ago I was, um, I had this vision of, um, like how we can view things in life. And I don't know how often you do this, but have you ever stood nose to a wall? Anybody? No, it's weird. Don't do it. Um, but the really interesting experience was this idea that if, so, like, take that wall for experience, like, right? At any point, if all of us stood up and put our nose on that wall, don't do it. Um, but if we put our nose to that wall, tell me, what what would you be able to see with your nose on the wall? Just what's around, literally right there, blue. Which, by the way, when I picked this color, I thought it was gray. Did not think it was that blue. Oh. <laughs> Came home one day, was realized that's blue, and realized, you better suck it up because we're not going to repay. <laughs> I But if we put our nose on that wall and I say, what can you see? The likelihood is you would not be able to see the entire wall because you're right, you're right up in it. So you have to take steps back to be able to see the whole thing. And when we are in the midst of a crap show of our life, we are in the, we are in the thick of it. Our nose is on the wall and we cannot see the entire picture. And I feel like a part of our faith is God constantly saying, I need you to step back away from the wall. I need you to step back a little bit more because I want to show you the whole thing, but I can't show you the whole thing because your nose is too close to the situation. Your nose is too close to the wall that you are not able to see the way I am moving because you're only expecting me to move one way as if there's only one road into that miracle, into that into that victory, into that breakthrough. There's only one way, and we want to know what that way is. So Jesus is burning with this righteous anger to these cities who have seen him do these great things. And he's saying, the wicked will receive salvation before you do because you are not getting it. You're not getting how much I love you. You're not getting what I am doing. And his righteous, his anger is not coming from a place of hatred or temper. His, he's speaking as a person who is so wrought with sorrow and sadness that the very people he came to die for are not getting it because they thought he would be one way and he came as another way. And I think in our context, it's really easy to be like, oh, freaking fools. Why didn't they get it? Jesus. Yes. Walking on water. Why would you doubt that? Like, look at him. Look at all the fish and look at all the loaves. We're like, idiots. He's doing it right there. We could say that sitting from our perspective. But if you think if you've been raised your entire life 
to expect God to only be one way. So let's say God is a square. That almost seems offensive without context. God is an oval. <laughs> but if you think, if everyone's like, God is an oval, God is an oval, and God comes as a triangle, you're like, you're not God. We can easily, the longer we've been in religious gatherings, the longer we can begin to think God is only this way. God is an angry, vindictive God. He does not love me. I've messed up too much. And how do I know that? Because I've, I've been judged by the people who say they love him, that there's no way God can love me because I am full of sin and brokenness, and he will forgive me several times, but he won't forgive me this time. He is an angry God. There is no forgiveness here. So when God says, I love you, you're like, you can't possibly love me because I've thought my entire life that my sin is what kept you away. There's no way you can love me. God's like, I love you. And you're like, but there's no way. So we embed these lies into our very faith to think that God can only be this way or that way. And God's like, I'm trying to blow up the entire situation and show you that I am so much bigger. I am so much greater. I am so much grander than anything you can ever expect. And I want to let you know that I love you. So Jesus is in the midst of that. He is wrought with sorrow because he's like, why don't you get it? Why don't you get it? But what you see in the religious people, and I want you to take a moment to, to just reflect, are these sins that you and I have in our own life that make us like the religious people. Because I want you to remember and us to remember that we can read the Bible and be like, freaking idiots, why didn't you get it? Like, it's right there. Like, you didn't get, what do you mean, Peter? How many times are you gonna mess up? Okay, what do you mean Jesus is gonna build a, the church on you and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it? You're freaking Peter, like you keep putting your foot in your mouth. Why aren't you getting it so easy to read the Bible with that perspective? And we can so easily forget that we are like the religious people that Jesus is constantly trying to be like, you're not getting it. And so the three sins that we see in the religious people, the people that Jesus was showing up for and be like, now do you think I'm the Messiah? And they're like, no. And these are it. It's the sin of privilege. It's the sin of indifference. And it's the sin of doing nothing. They have the privilege of seeing, experiencing, and being in the very presence of the incarnate Son of God, and they chose to not believe. They saw people restored and healed and set free, but they were indifferent to it. And then they experienced the gospel and Jesus himself, and they did nothing with that truth. In America, a sin is our privilege. If you think about it, like, we had to take Hyrie to the emergency room a couple weeks ago because she was coughing so bad and she was throwing up. And, like, I am calling every emergency room. I called one in Kirkland, I think, because I was like, why not? Um, just call everybody. And I just realized I have the incredible privilege that if something is wrong with my daughter, I can, I can take her to the emergency room. I can get medical help if something is wrong. I can do that. I have the privilege of doing that. So my first reaction can easily not never be actually praying that God would intercede on her behalf because I could just I just call the doctor, right? In other nations, they don't necessarily have that luxury. 
That if you can never take your child to an emergency room and somebody told you that God is a healer and you believe that, then that becomes, that is it. God will meet and intercede. And here's the thing, is that around the world, miracles are happening beyond what we can comprehend. And it's in happening in nations with incredible persecution, incredible lack, because they don't have the same privileges as we do. Do we need to pray for God's provision if we are not lacking anything? The, even the sin of indifference, how often do we walk around in our lives and encounter people who need so deeply to hear about how much Jesus loves them and we are indifferent to the fact that they may not even deserve dignity because they're sitting on a sidewalk and they're homeless and we walk by them avoiding eye contact because they might be dangerous. But there's somebody who deserves dignity because there's somebody who is made in the very image of God. And the thing that I want us to recognize right now is that if we gather as a body of people and here we gather here and we grow here, but we don't go out there, our sin will be doing nothing. We would just be religious people gathering in someone's house, singing worship songs with awesome background slides. You're welcome. We would be doing all these things, but if we are not taking the gospel back out there into our work, into our community, into the schools, into every arena that God has made for us to live and thrive in, we will be we will be held accountable for the sin of doing nothing. Because out there, that is where the gospel is going. Here is where we grow together so that we can go out there. And then we come back here and we grow together and then we go back out there. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. This is fantastic, but there's nothing magical or super like anointed about this physical space. If you have a coworker who does not know Jesus, you have every ability to tell them about Jesus and lead them to Christ. You do not have to drag them here for them to hear about Jesus from me and then for me to lead them to Christ because chances are you are better equipped to disciple your friends and family than I am. And so if we do not grow here, if we do not first gather and grow and then we don't go, this is useless. This is just religious people getting comfortable and coming together and eating really good food. And I can tell you right now, I don't want to be a gathering that does nothing. I don't want to be a gather. I don't want to be a believer that says I believe and then do nothing with my life to tell people about who Jesus is. Because then Sodom, the wicked people of Sodom, have it better off than I do. So Jesus is calling them to the mat. He's like, you are having this. You have the sin of privilege, indifference, and you have done nothing with this incredible gift that I've given you. It's like giving pearls to a pig. You just will not appreciate it. It's like buying expensive jeans for children. What is the point? They will grow out of it next week. So you buy cheap leggings. Mm -hmm. But that's another message. Like all the moms, like, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely buy the cheap leggings. <laughs> and here, we should remember that it is not far-fetched to think that even the worst of the worst would repent when they encounter Jesus than the people who already think they know him. In ministry, the hardest people to ever minister to and love and to correct are people who think they already know. It is not the people who have no idea 
It is not the drug dealer out on the street for whatever reason or the homeless kid out on the street for whatever reason. It is not the prostitute. It is not the broken people who have never heard that struggle so much to hear the gospel and accept Jesus. It is the people who sit inside of a church and say, we've got this covered. We've got our religious thing that we do. We've got it covered. So Jesus calls them out. And can I just remind everyone here, this is one of my favorite examples. It says, sitting in a garage does not make you a car. Sitting in a church does not make you a Christ follower. It just means yeah. you sat inside of a church. But if I went and sat in my garage right now, and I'm like, guys, I'm a car! And you're like, I can tell you so many reasons why you're not a car. You don't look like one. You can't go 60 miles an hour. You don't have cup holders. You can think of all the reasons, cause, but, but you're like, but I'm in the garage. I am a car. And you're like, no, but you're not, you're not a car. There's so many reasons. It's like all the people who think they're cats and you're like, no, I can't. You're not a cat. Yes. Like, I don't care if you wear a tail, put ears on. You're not a freaking cat. We'll cut this out of the report. But the idea. <laughs> but right? Like, would you believe if I sat in my garage and be like, I'm a car. Yeah. And you're like, no, because one, you're also talking. But somehow we think if somebody is in church, if going to church is the criteria of following Christ, that that is, that is the epitome. And then we <coughs> judge people when they struggle to get to a physical gathering for whatever reason, instead of why don't I just become the church for you where you're at? So he's calling them out because everything they thought he would be, he isn't. And they're still missing the point. So sitting in a garage does not make me a car. And sitting in a church doesn't make me a Christ follower. Then what are the marks of discipleship? What makes a Christian a Christian? What makes somebody who has encountered the gospel somebody who has changed? And there's always a part of our message where I ask these questions and I want you to think, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? How do you know when someone is a Christian? How do you know when someone is a Christ follower? Is it because they look a certain way? Is it because they talk a certain way? How do you know? Tristan, how do you know? I don't know. You're like, touche. <laughs> oh, snap! <laughs> so, how would you know? By spreading the love of Jesus. By spreading the love. So, what does that mean? Is that... You're talking his, speaking the word of God. Just... So, like, living it out. Yeah, living okay. it out. That's the best example you can give to people is living it out. I just want to show up and tell people what you gave us in that class. I would say maybe compassion. Compassion? Forgiving. Forgiving. Because um, I think compassion is a key element in taking yourself away from the, the opportunity when you encounter someone. Yeah. Because it, you can't focus on teaching someone about Jesus if you're still thinking about yourself. Compassion makes you put them first. Yeah. The same way God put Jesus first. Yeah. That's good. Compassion. I think it's really easy to fake being a Christian. So I think a key way is, you know, knowing a Christian, seeing a Christian is like, you know, over time do their, you know, their actions reflect what they're speaking. Uh, it's easiest seen in like people you know before they converted, or even just somebody who's you know trying to you know, 
strengthen that relationship. It's just, you know, it's something that you can see through interactions in time. It's not necessarily just a, a glance at somebody to. I think there's an element of something that we can't explain that when you encounter, like, and I want you to think, like, have you ever encountered somebody whose faith, like, you're like, I don't even know what it is about you, but whatever it is, it's like freaking intoxicating. And I don't want to make that sounded so weird. Because I don't actually say that to people. Just heads up. I'm like, I don't know what it is about you. <laughs> but I'm getting drunk in the spirit. I don't say that. Context. But you meet someone and there's just something about them that you're like, what is it? It's the unexplainable. It is the spirit of God. It is the overflow of what they're experiencing in their relationship with God. Where it feels like they're carrying a cup full of water. And they're shaking the cup and it's just coming over. It's spilling over the edge. You're like, what is it? There's an element of that. But practically, I think that we can tell who believe by just watching their life. Not watching their social media. That does not count. But watching the way that they treat people. And watching them just interact. Or watching them handle some really crappy situation. That, like... And the thing is that following Christ is such an incredible journey and process that you don't accept Jesus and all of a sudden you don't struggle with sin anymore. Because if anybody in the circle is like, no, I'm totally free from sin, like I do not struggle at all, lying would be the one that we would talk about next, (laughs) right? Because we all have our journey and we all have our processes. And my encouragement for us as a gathering is, would we be the people that have grace for each other's journey? Will we be the people that love so deeply that we will not ever characterize each other by how we can lose our temper sometimes or how we can be imperfect sometimes? But would we be the gathering of people who recognize that if I'm in process, you're in process, we are in process, and it's an incredible privilege to be in process together? Because that is what makes a Christian community a Christian community. It's how we are we are openly allowing people to simply belong here in the midst of this before they ever believe, before they ever behave the way that we think a Christian should behave. They simply belong. But somewhere along the line, church has been a place where people have to behave a certain way to be accepted in. Like, do you have your crap together enough? And then maybe they believe. But it isn't until they first kind of act like it first that they finally feel like they belong. And I do not want us to be a community that have people that they feel like they have to pretend to be a Christian to feel like they belong amongst us. Because we should love so extravagantly and so boldly that people just want to be amongst us because we just love them well. And historically, the American church has not loved people well. And it is time that that changes before we will become the religious people that miss the point when God is moving because we're like, there's no way God could be moving this way. And then he goes on and you see the next series, he goes, yes, father, it pleased you to do it this way. My father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the son except the father and no one truly knows the father except the son and to those whom the son chooses to reveal himself. Then Jesus said, come to me. All who are weary and carry heavy burdens, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. And I think as Jesus goes on, he goes, it is exactly God's way to do this. That kingdom culture is always going to contradict world culture. That it was his desire to give and show it to people where it's like, what is this? This childlike faith. That it was his desire to do this. Because spiritual maturity in the kingdom of God is having a childlike mentality. Um... I, one of my favorite things ever is the girls really like to jump off things to Riley and they just have full trust he's going to be there. They don't do it for me for good reason. I'm not fast. But they would just like walk and be like, hey! and they'll just jump. And I'm like, yeah! and Riley's like, got it. And I there's this one uh, video that I have and it was, Kyrie was about two. And uh, we were at a family Christmas and Riley tells her to go run across the room. She runs across the room and then she just launches into Riley. And what he does is he takes her and flips her 360, full tilt 360, and catches her. And she's like, ah! And I'm like, if you break that child, like, they're, I'm going to be so pissed off at you <laughs> right now. But she just had full trust that Riley would never, like, drop her. That Riley would never hurt her. She has this full childlike trust because she has not been jaded by life. This is what she knows is that she is loved. And there is something that happens to believers in our spiritual maturity where we live and exist in full confidence that we are just loved. And not we are loved because we act right or we are loved because we never mess up. It is we are loved because we were created intentionally in the image of God. He loves us because he created us. And there is something that overflows from that confidence of being loved. And here's the thing. I grew up in an incredibly broken home. Incredibly broken home. I did not know I was loved growing up. I was told that I was too fat and too ugly. When Riley asked my parents for my hand in marriage, my mom literally looked at him and said, are you sure she's not that great? That's how messed up my family, my mother is. And I, I didn't have that confidence. So when God told me he loved me, somebody told me God loves me, my first response was F you man. No joke, I was 17. And he calls me, he goes, I just want to let you know God loves you. And I'm like, hard pass, F you. And he was like, what? And I was like, you heard me. Don't tell, don't you dare tell me your God loves me because this is my life. How dare you? And I was so angry because I did not know I was loved just because I was loved by this incredible God. And now that we are raising our children, man, I just want to be like, you are so loved. Like, you know when you're like... Think of somebody you love. And like, so mine, I think about our kids. I'm like, even when they make the stupidest decisions, I'm just like, I still love you. Even when they are disrespectful and we correct them, it's like, I love you. 
when they lie and we're like, it breaks our heart. I still love you. And this is the love that God has for his people. It is his desire that we would have this childlike mentality when it comes to being in his presence. Because guess what? The girls are not afraid to approach Riley or I. In fact, it's when we are distracted that they're like, oh, you're on the phone. This is the best time to talk to you about something. <laughs> oh, you're in the bathroom. It's fine. You're sitting down. Like We can have a conversation. There's no fear. There's just like, you are my parents. And I need to tell you something, and I need to tell you something right now, and it's the most important thing. That is how we should approach God. Not with this fear that there is shame, that there is brokenness inside of us, that, oh my gosh, I cannot approach the presence of God because my sin is too great. It should be the way children approach their parents. Just like, I gotta tell you something. This is nuts. Like, one of my favorite things is just hear Kyrie talk, because I'm like, that was a 30-minute conversation about a grape. <laughs> just one great and she just goes for it but like the thing is like this is what she knows is like my parents listen to me they love me they want to hear me talk sometimes they'll tell me to stop but I'll just keep going there is no fear and that is the way in our spiritual maturity we have to embrace that childlike behavior we have to embrace that childlike mindset that God wants to hear what I have to say about what happened God wants to know, and I want to know what God thinks about it. I want to know what is going on. I'm going to ask God. So that childlike behavior that God desires for us to have, something happens along the way, I believe, in our culture, where we really try to kill it out of kids. The why, like, don't get me wrong, I really struggle with this, like, full, full disclosure. If you ask me why one more time, I will lose my mind. I don't know why. I don't know why the hot dog is that color. I don't know why it looks like that. I don't I don't have all the answers. But I recognize that there's something that we do to children as they grow up where we don't want them to just assume that people are good. We don't want that we want them to begin to slowly judge who they will be kind to. We want them to judge slowly who they, they will share Jesus to. We want them to slowly begin to build these ideas as they get older. And then because of brokenness and because of the world, there will already be things that they will struggle to bring to the Lord because of the culture of shame and the culture of struggle and how we should do it, like how we should just be in darkness with our brokenness. But spiritual maturity is a childlike faith. So if we want to grow in our faith, we need to grow in our childlike attitude of approaching God without fear, of talking to him about everything. Like there's something, have you, you know when there's a point where like a child, like they did something wrong and they're like, or they break something and their first reaction is like, I'm going to bring it to my, I'm going to bring it to dad. Dad totally knows how to fix this because mom says she doesn't know where the batteries are. But like, I'm going to bring it to dad and dad is going to fix this. It's not going to be, it's, I'm not going to get in trouble that I broke it. It's just that this thing is broken. It needs to get fixed and dad fixes it. But then something happens to where when they break something, there's now shame. There's now, I'm going to get in trouble. I got to hide this because when he finds out, he's going to be so mad at me. And I think something shifts in us where we go from dad Father God, this is broken. Like, can you fix it? I know I broke it. 
But can you just fix it anyways? To the shift. Oh, this is broken. I need to hide it from God because God is going to be mad. And I'm going to be punished. And I need to be afraid of that. So if we want to grow in our spiritual maturity, we need to begin to embrace these incredible things that we see in children every day to just know that they are loved and they are seen. Because like probably until the age of a lot older, you invest in children and there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, reinvestment. There's just like, it's like I, I give you everything. And every once in a while you'll tell me you like me. Just give you everything. And once in a while you'll give me something back. I don't know why I shared that. I think that's something that's some trauma with the kids or something. <laughs> There's just something about how we interact with God that should be like a child. That should feel comfortable. Um, so this, like, if you ever have any siblings, have you ever seen a little kid just walk out of the room, like, butt naked, think it's, like, the funniest thing in the world? Yes. <laughs> and then they want to put their butts on everything? Yes. Like, that's the funniest thing in the world? It is the funniest thing. <laughs> no, you're like, what are you talking about? That is hilarious. <laughs> but it's so funny, because sometimes the girls will do that. We'll just come out of the bedroom, like, butt naked. <laughs> and they're, like, laughing. And they're, like, oh, thank you. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, that's cool. Windows are open. <laughs> so, like, open on closed. But the is, there's no shame in their nakedness. There's no shame in the fact that they're fully butt naked. There's just joy. They're like, I don't know what's hilarious, but this is funny. <laughs> and I think there's something about that moment that resonates with the Garden of Eden. That they were just walking around naked, no shame. They didn't know shame until sin came in and then animals had to die to create the clothing and that was the first sacrifice was in the garden of Eden because of sin and then Jesus becomes the final sacrifice because of sin and sometimes I think maybe we should be like our kids a little bit when it comes to just full cause I'm gonna walk out of my I'm gonna walk out of my spiritual room butt naked and I'm gonna laugh in the presence of God. <laughs> that again without context could come off weird. But you guys know what I mean, right? Not hiding anything, not fearful of anything, not worried about anything. Just this is who I am. And to know that I am loved. And then Jesus goes on, oh, my father has entrusted me, every, he's entrusted everything to me. And nobody knows truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. But the Greek word for to know is epigonosko, and it, it, it connotates it a deep, deep intimacy, a deep, deep, like it's not just, oh, I know about this person. It is, I know this person. I know everything about them I I am intimate I am transparent and vulnerable that is epigonosco and Jesus saying that is how I know the father and that is how he knows me and there's no way to have epigonosco that to know the intimacy with the father except through me because Matthew's entire purpose of the book is to talk to the Jewish audience about how Jesus is the Messiah so he's again pointing to that Jesus is the only way to God, this epigonosco, this intimacy. And he ends it with, 
and no one truly knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. And what's interesting is when I first read that, I'm like, so who do you choose to reveal yourself to in this context? But context in the scriptures, after that, he's inviting people to come to him. He's choosing to reveal himself right there. And he's like, you want to know the Father? You want the epigonosco? You want that intimacy? You can only know him through me. And then I will choose who I will reveal myself. So he says, now everyone come to me. I will reveal myself to you. And we will have that intimacy. And in that intimate spot in our relationship, there is freedom. And there is transparency. There's safety. But in the invitation of come here, they have to decide to come there. And that is the thing about this. The note that I made is that it's our choice whether or not we will take his yoke. It is our choice whether or not we will take the invitation of come to me, all those who are weary and burdened with heavy things, come to me. It will be our decision when I come to you. Right? If you think about it, like, I like to really shout for people in my house. Like, yes, I could get up, and yes, I could go get them. But if I can say, Ryan! Babe! And he's downstairs, I'm just going to shout louder, because I just really think my voice is going to carry all the way down there. And then it'll be his choice whether or not he comes. <laughs> and I'm like, babe! And then when he does it, I'm like, why don't you come? And then I'll text him. I'm calling you. You come. And then I'll scooch a little bit closer. Not fully getting to the stairs. Maybe sit a little closer over here. Like, man! Just because I call doesn't mean he's going to come. Just because Jesus invites doesn't mean people will come. And he says, come to me. Because I've chosen to reveal myself to you. Come. Give me your burdens. Give me your weariness. Give me your brokenness. Give me all the things that you have been carrying. Because I want to take that and I want to give you my yoke. I want to give you that intimate. And what 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 does that even mean? Like what does what do you mean you want to give me your yoke? Because I don't know about you, but I am not a farm girl. Surprise. <laughs> and I have never had to put a saddle or anything all up on an animal. I prefer not to. To pet an animal, I like to go like this to a horse at the farm and not actually touch it. Just air patting. Like, oh, you're so pretty and large and you're going to poop. <laughs> and it's going to splatter everywhere. So I'm going to be over here. I'm not a farm <coughs> Like, I like farm clothes because it looks cute. So full judgment, full disclosure, or whatever. <laughs> but this idea is like this yoke we don't understand. Like, what do you mean take my yoke? I... And what it is, is a yoke, uh, fun fact, I actually really like studying this, is that what they would do, they call them beasts of burden, so like oxen, heavy, large animals that can do manual labor. And they will yoke and essentially attach two beasts of burden, like two oxen, with a wood, essentially something that sits on their shoulders, and it will keep the oxen walking together. They don't walk like this, just heads up, oxen don't walk like this but essentially it keeps them going in the same direction. And the thing about a yoke is that it isn't just like one size fits all. What they would do is that they would measure the oxen and they would essentially form a yoke to the oxen 
so that it doesn't hurt them, that they would wear it properly. And then they would make the yoke and they would bring it back to the oxen and they would match it to the oxen and see if it's the right fit. It's like finding the perfect pair of jeans. Just gotta try it on a couple times. Just gotta, babe, it is a very relevant <laughs> example. Yes. Yeah. Very if anything, I am pretty sure all the people who have found their perfect jeans, everyone else, we will pray for you. <laughs> but it's like finding that, like, it is made for you. Like, you put on a pair of jeans and you're like, this was made for me. If I wore jeans, that's what I would say. But it's like putting on leggings. You're like, <laughs> these were made. And the yoke was made for, for the beast of burden so they can walk together and do their work together. So when Jesus says, take my yoke, that is an invitation to live like him. Carry the thing that I have made specifically for you. I did not make you to be like everybody else. I did not make you to fit a generic one size fit all yoke. I have a yoke just for you and it is connected with me and it is perfect for you. I have measured it out. I have considered it. I know your gifts. I know your skills. I know where you suck. I know everything. And I have the perfect one for you. And the thing about the yoke that I have for you, it will not crush you. It's like, it's like have you ever walked in a pair of shoes that are too small or too big? When I uh, grew up incredibly poor, so that was a common thing in my life, is wearing wrong size shoes. I did not know what shoe size I wore until I practically became an adult. That's how, that just context on my life. I was just used to, it was just absolutely normal to have clothes that didn't fit right and have shoes that didn't fit right because that's what happens when you're poor. You don't get all these options. And so I have this experience, but what Jesus is saying, this is going to fit you perfectly. This thing that I've gifted and called you to, it's going to be so good. And it will not crush you. It is made perfectly for you. And when he says that my yoke is easy, it literally means my yoke will be useful and it will be serviceable. So what does that mean? It means that when we bear the yoke that Jesus has for us, the calling that Jesus has for us, it will be put to use for the kingdom of God and it will be to the service of other people because we are to be like Christ. And Jesus, he gave his life for the kingdom of God and to the service of people. And that is what we are called to do in all the yoke that all, all the different yokes that we bear here in this circle. It is for use and it's for kingdom work. And it will fit so well because when it fits so well, there is joy. There's joy in the work. And when I was studying, this was so perfect because I have been very transparent about my journey and struggling with the calling to do this and everything that has taken to get to this point. Like a year and a half seems like a flash, but when you are wrestling when I am wrestling in the night with the Lord about like, are you sure? Because if you didn't want me to do this, I could totally not do this and like be okay not doing this. And Jesus is like, but this is my yoke for you. This is what I've made for you to do in this season. And there will be great joy if you would just stop fighting the yoke. If you would stop fighting this because you think this other thing is better for you. Let me put my yoke on you. And there is joy there and I want also like I'll stay up myself so I hope that gives some of you maybe some comfort <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> your pastor does not have her poop in a group all the time Riley will be the first one to adjust that 
So, <laughs> so I'm going to... Don't lose the You've been married long enough. <laughs> so I want, I want, I'm going to actually end this time in prayer. Um, and when I'm praying, uh, just to... I, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think of the safest place you've ever been. And like a child, I want you to take whatever you're carrying, and you can do it with your physical hands, you can just do it in your mind, but that thing that you have been carrying for so long, whatever it is, I want you just to imagine just handing it off. If it is rags of shame and brokenness, I want you just imagine yourself taking off the rags. If it is like wearing a backpack full of rocks, I want you to imagine yourself taking it off, okay? And just, and then how do you feel once you take this burden off of yourself? Um, Jesus, you are good and you invite us to come to you. And then you give us the freedom of whether or not we will acknowledge who you are and live according to the truth that we know. Oh Lord, I thank you that you want to take the heaviest of our burdens. You want to take every piece of brokenness that has been a part of our lives and you just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this from you. I wanna take it from you. And what I'm, gonna, what I'm gonna give you is robes of righteousness. What I'm gonna give you is restoration. What I'm gonna give you is grace and peace. And what I'm gonna give you is the promise that I am with you and I am for you and I will not forsake you for the yoke that I have made for you is just for you. And God, I thank you that following you, being in relationship with you is not about perfection. It is not about pretending that we have everything figured out. It is not behaving in a way that we think Christians should behave in order to belong. But God, being with you and knowing we are loved by you because you created us, God, I pray that we would sense the joy in that. And like our children who bring broken things to us because they know that we can fix it. God, I pray that we would bring our broken things to you, whatever they are. If it is anger with you, if it is a doubt about you, if it's addiction, if it is anything, God, I pray that we would just give it to you without shame or fear, but just having full confidence that you will make it better. And Lord, I pray, Lord, I just lift up angel to you, God. I pray it just even the boldness of sharing this journey and this struggle. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would pour peace into her heart that would overflow Lord, that she would know, God, that when you have called somebody, nobody can disqualify that. That when your anointing is on somebody, no one can take that away. It is not something that could be robbed. Your calling cannot be robbed from a person. It is our decision whether or not we will come to you and walk in your yoke, walk in the thing that you have made for us. But God, for every person in this room, I pray a full assurance that they would know that they are loved they are so deeply loved, they are so deeply seen, they are so deeply cared for, and that they are so deeply welcomed. And God, I pray that the crushing burdens that we might put on each other without even knowing it, 
or the crushing burdens, God, that religious things can put upon us, that we would take that off and know that is not from you. So Jesus, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this gathering. God, I thank you for Miss Natalie, who's downstairs, and Jenna and Elizabeth, who are downstairs. I pray, Lord, just a blessing over them as they love all them kids. And God, I pray for our friends who could not be here tonight, that you would continue to heal and restore their bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I told you that that was the last thing I was doing, then I realized I had some more slides. Uh, don't worry, it's it's kind of like actions, because in case, in case you're a proactive kind of person, you're like, no one. Uh, my, the three things that I want us to choose to do, because if he beckons us to him, and it's our choice to respond, what I pray over us, and what I pray that you would do, is that first and foremost, you would choose to see God move in your everyday. Whatever that looks like. That you would choose to see, if it is the, the fact that the weather changes without us, well, we do a lot to make the weather changes severely. That's a bad example. <laughs> but you look at the fact that your kids have sight, and that is millions of optical nerves that came together when they were in utero to give them sight. It, if it is laughter, whatever it is, would we choose to see God move in our everyday? Second one, would we choose to take his yoke because it was made? especially for us fitted especially for us not for the person next to us not for that person over there but just for us we choose to take it and the last one is that we choose to rest and in a frantic chaotic culture my prayer for us is that we would rest because that is the promise from Jesus is if you come to me I will give you rest. But the thing about somebody giving you something, Jesus giving you rest, it means that he's the source of that rest and there will be unrest apart from him. But his promise is, I will give it to you. But the first thing is that you have to choose to come to me. So would we be like our children, even in the most annoying times, where they come to us in the most inconvenient times? It is because they know that they have full access to us. So would we know 